Hey folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Hello, America, and happy Wednesday, and this is John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News, and if we say John Solomon Reports, we should report, and if we say Just the News, we should give you some news, right? Well, today, we're going to do that. At the top of this show, we are breaking a very, very important story, one that has remained a secret for most of the last 22 months since the January 6th tragedy occurred back in 2021, and Democrats have had their say. They've had their hearings. They've made their referrals on Donald Trump. They have gave us the false stories of Secret Service wheels being grabbed that weren't grabbed and testimony that has been debunked. We, we get all that. And at the end of the day, the facts still haven't changed, right? One fact is the truth. There are bad people who went to the Capitol and did bad things, and they should be prosecuted. I don't care if you're conservative, Republican, whether you thought the election was stolen or not. You don't beat cops. You don't invade property. You don't do the things that many people did that day. That said, one of the most enduring and most important issues for all of us as Americans, every time we've had a tragedy like this, 9-11, Oklahoma City, and go through all our history, Pearl Harbor, what can we learn to become a safer, better nation? The January 6th committee under Democratic control ignored that issue. Why? You find out today why. Their leadership, their speaker, Nancy Pelosi, was directly involved in the planning the security plan that was so failed that day. And today, we're able to put that story out. It broke on just the news a few minutes ago. House Republicans, on their own, were able to gather emails and text messages showing that Pelosi's office was directly involved in the security planning. So much so, they were editing stuff that were going out to lawmakers in the plant. They were meeting all the way back to December with Capitol Police and the House Sergeant-at-Arms. The people who knew what had happened in those weeks, those faithful weeks and days leading up to January 6th, when they saw Nancy Pelosi come out and say, I have nothing to do with security. When they saw Nancy Pelosi come out and say, my sergeant at arms let us down, Paul Irving should resign. They had a different opinion. And today we see the email and messages 
of those experts who knew what really went on. In this story that we broke just a few minutes ago under the headline, House GOP locates emails and texts showing Pelosi office was directly involved in the failed January 6th security plan. In there, there is an extraordinary conversation. These emails and texts are put in a report that Republicans put out. It's a very important document for what it brings to light for all of us. But there is an amazing, amazing exchange. It comes 24 hours after the death settled from the January 6th riot. Shortly after Nancy Pelosi came out and forced the resignation of her sergeant at arms, the chief security officer of the House, Paul Irving, one of the staffers in that office who had witnessed everything that went on wrote this text message to Irving. I just want you to listen to it because it epitomizes the lie we have been told about January 6th that Nancy Pelosi had nothing to do. Now, we know she had lots to do. Why? Her chief of staff and one of her top security aides were meeting regularly. They attended meetings where they excluded Republicans from having a say or even knowing what was going on. Right? So this is pretty serious stuff. Here is the quote that this House Sergeant-at-Arms staffer wrote to her boss about to be forced out of his job. For the speakers, that's Nancy Pelosi, by the way, for the speakers' knee-jerk reaction to yesterday's unprecedented event, and God knows how Congress lives for its knee-jerk reactions to hell with future consequences, to immediately call for your resignation after you have been denied again and again by House Appropriations for proper security outfitting the Capitol, and to blame you personally because our department was doing the best they could with what they had and our comparatively small department size and a limited officer resources for Congress to demand your resignation is spectacularly unjust, unfair, and unwarranted. Now, one could say, all right, this is just a staffer sucking up to their soon-to-be former boss, right? But it's not because the documents clearly and unequivocally show that Pelosi's people were in the loop, that they were in the know, that they were deciding what would and not be told to members of Congress. And they're meeting with the very people who got, as I reported last summer, you guys all remember the stories I did last summer, they were meeting with the people who in the Capitol Police Department were getting the intelligence from the FBI, the U.S. Marshal Service, the Homeland Security Department, the Metropolitan Police Department of Washington, D.C., all of them saying, hey, here is chatter on the internet. Here are specific threats. They have maps of the tunnels. They're planning to confront lawmakers. They're planning to go after Nancy Pelosi. They want to interrupt the certification of the vote. All that intelligence was in the hands of Capitol Police on December 21st. And from December 21st to January 6th, Nancy Pelosi, her security people, her House Sergeant Arms and the police were all meeting, doing so oftentimes by excluding Republicans. And they put together a plan that was woefully inadequate. In many ways, the failures here, though the consequences were much more severe, mirror what I reported 20 years ago when I won all the awards I did at the Associated Press about how the FBI, the CIA, and the intelligence community had all the pieces of the 9-11 plot but failed to put it together, failed to connect the dots. Here, they had all the evidence. They knew the warnings. They had names of people. They had discussions. They had maps that the bad guys were using to prepare their attacks. And still, they didn't put together a plan. They turned down the early offer of the Trump administration to put the National Guard in the Capitol. 
That offer, as I was able to report exclusively from documents this summer, came on January 2nd. They had four days they could have gotten the National Guard on. And today, in these text messages and emails and in the narrative report that House Republicans led by Kevin McCarthy and Jim Banks and Jim Jordan and Troy Nels, in that narrative, they said the reason they didn't give the cops the resources they wanted. And by the way, we're not only talking about the National Guard. We're talking about helmets and gear and a security perimeter, all those things. The reason they didn't do it is because they had an obsession with the optics of armed people protecting the Capitol. So they left an unarmed, unprepared Capitol Police Force, who we pay to the tune of $600 million a year, to fend for themselves for violence that they had been warned was forthcoming. There is this extraordinary set of quotes in this report. Our report exposes the partisanship, incompetence, and indifference that led to the disaster on January 6th. In other words, this was a preventable attack. That's the ultimate conclusion when you read the report of investigation I put up, when you read these text messages I put up, that is the inevitable conclusion that one makes from this report. A preventable attack. More resources, better planning, less worried about optics, more worried about the security threat, Even if the bad guys acted, the police, the National Guard could have put this riot down. And they didn't. And I want to go back to the words of that House security official, the person who worked in the House Sergeant-at-Arms office. She said, as she wrote to her boss, that the police and the security apparatus had been denied again and again. They were denied again and again the resources needed to protect one of the nation's most important homes of democracy, the United States Capitol. Now, Democrats spent a whole year telling us how they were defending democracy, and conservatives and Republicans were putting it at risk. Today, you see the failure of Democrats to protect democracy, to protect the U.S. Capitol, and a 19, 20, 21, 22-month effort by Nancy Pelosi to deny that she could have done anything. She actually was doing something. She was in charge. And the January 6th events were the result, as this report concludes, a result of leadership and law enforcement failures. Political leadership, police leadership failed us. That's a story that we were denied for most of the last 20 months. But today, on Just the News, in this report, in these documents, you can go in yourself and read. You can now see what we know. And... You'll also be able to judge all the institutional failings, all the security improvements that the January 6th Democratic-led committee could have helped America get to. Hey, they can have their beef with Donald Trump. They can have their beef with the protesters. I certainly do. I don't think the people that went in the Capitol had any right to do what they did. Just like I didn't think the liberal protesters after the George Floyd protest had any right to throw Molotov cocktails into police cars and assault police officers. Same behavior, different ideology. Doesn't matter. Under the law, they were both wrong. They both should be punished. But the, the, the January 6th Democratic Committee could have had all the politics, but they could have done something to make the Capitol more safe. They could have acknowledged the failures that occurred on Nancy Pelosi's watch, just like the FBI acknowledged its failures after 9-11, just like Oklahoma authorities acknowledged their failures after the Timothy McVeigh bombing. But instead, they ran a ruse, like the ruse of Russia collusion, like the ruse of so many false stories that were shoved down the throats of the American public the last four years that I've tried to help unravel 
I only do it. I'm not trying to help Democrats or Republicans. I want you, the American people, to have facts to make up your own mind. Well, the Democrats on the January 6th committee kept those facts from the American people because their leader, Nancy Pelosi, had some culpability. And listen, I don't think anyone would have said Nancy Pelosi if she said, I made some mistakes, we can do it better next time. They would have said, thank you. Thanks for coming forward and making it clear. They did it. They ran a cover-up. And they kept the Republicans from being on the committee. And it's only now, on the outside, because people like Kevin McCarthy and Rodney Davis and Jim Banks and Troy Nels and Jim Jordan and Kelly Armstrong, six lawmakers who on their own went and got these documents, interviewed police whistleblowers, made the case for the extraordinary security failure, planning failure, mindset failure. And when I talk about mindset failure, what do I mean? When you're making a security plan, political optics shouldn't matter. The security threat and the security solution, what's matter? Any security expert from the NYPD to the Metropolitan Police to the FBI to the U.S. Secret Service, they'll tell you that. You don't let politics into security planning. You put security into security planning. But the optics thing, which this report goes into great detail to show all the political optics excuses that kept the National Guard, kept the equipment, kept even the officers from being armed. Well, those were the decisions. Those were the pressures that drove the debate for this extraordinary and failed security plan that led to the January 6th overrunning of the Capitol. Hey, people were still going to act badly. There's no doubt about it. We know that. And we condemn those people. But the ability to have kept the capital much safer, to have repelled the attack, to have had the resources necessary to deal with this, well, they were within our reach. They were within the reach of Nancy Pelosi, the House Sergeant-at-Arms, the Capitol Police Chief, the Capitol Police Leaders. Now, there are some issues inside. There's an intelligence chief who clearly didn't pay attention much to the concerns of her own intelligence analysts, and she was fiddling with structure and missing the trees from the forest. But... The intel was there. The instinct was there. There's a reason Nancy Pelosi's people were meeting with cops and security. They knew something was afoot, but they didn't put the security plan in that would protect this great institution. And that part of the story has been denied all of us the last two years. Now, for the first time, as a result of this report, as a result of these documents I got, as a result of the story I just wrote, we now have more data points to make a more informed decision about what we got right and what we got wrong on January 6th. We already know the people did the wrong things, right? But what about the security apparatus? What about our political leaders? Today, we have some accountability we previously had been denied, and I think that is an important part of what we're trying to do. So on that note, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We have an amazing show for you today. The one, the only, Dennis Prager, the great author, the great radio and TV host, the great conservative thought leader. He's going to join us at the top of the show. We'll ask him about this breaking news. We'll also get on to many other subjects, including an amazing column he wrote yesterday that showed how so many families won't celebrate Christmas together because of political differences. Liberal children won't visit their parents and grandparents because they don't like their political candidates. That's what he wrote. That's a powerful thing to think about. Political division, destroying family. That's not America. At least not the America I'm used to seeing. But that is the America that we are now beginning to see more evidence of every day. And I think that that is a powerful thing. And we're going to talk to Dennis about that. Then the second half of the show, one of the greatest Senate investigators in the last 20 years, somebody that had a role in so many critical exposés, exposing 
the failures of the Russia collusion investigation, including Hillary Clinton's funding of the dossier, the Fast and Furious scandal, the gun scandal, so many. Jason Foster, former chief investigator for Chuck Grassley on the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, he's going to join us. He runs a whistleblower center. We're going to talk to him about the big story we broke on Tuesday. You know what that is, right? That the FBI and Justice Department were spying on the House Intelligence Committee, getting their phone and email records through a grand jury subpoena process. A lot to question Jason Foster about in that interview. We're going to have that in the second half of the show. All right, let's take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Dennis Prager followed by Jason Foster. What a great show. Go check out that breaking news on justthenews.com. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer. No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. This next guest, he really needs no introduction. He is one of the most important conservative thought leaders of all time. A great show host, a great author, a great thinker. My good friend, Dennis Prager. Dennis, great to have you on the show, sir. It is a true joy to be with you. Thank you so much. And I just want to start just a few minutes before you came on. We just broke the story at Just the News, but the House Republicans have put out a series of text messages and emails showing that contrary to what Nancy Pelosi told us a year and a half ago, that she had nothing to do with security. Her office was directly involved in the security planning that failed on January 6th, even editing the security plan, attending all the meetings, sometimes excluding Republicans from the security planning. She stood in front of the cameras and said, I have no power over the police or security. A lot of people have always challenged that. Your reaction to the Republicans finally putting this evidence out? So you won't expect this reaction, but I think you'll, you'll agree with it, but I don't think it's the one you might expect. 
My single biggest question is, will the mainstream media report this? Yeah, so important. See, I'll tell you why it's important. People need to understand something. We who are right of center, we listen to, watch, and study under and read people on the left. It is possible, however, to be on the left and never watch, read, hear, or study under someone on the right. So we know everything they know, and they know almost nothing that we know. And uh, the, for example, on a totally separate subject, the, the number of young people who, who are crying out because they so regret that they quote unquote transitioned to the other sex, these, these, they're never reported in the New York Times or Washington Post or LA Times or, or CNN, et cetera, et cetera. So they don't, they don't know people's liberal, forget leftist. I draw a distinction between liberal and left. They vote the same, but they're not the same. They, they don't know all about this. I asked a relative who was extremely uh, sophisticated and has a very high rank at an Ivy league institution. If he ever heard of Jordan Peterson, never heard of Jordan Peterson. And the only reason he probably heard of me is, is that I'm a relative. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're living in parallel universes. Isn't it? It's kind of scary. Well, yes, but, we, but again, we live in their universe. That's right. That's the big difference. So back to your point, you will break this news. But will, will my relatives know this? Probably not. Yeah, you're exactly right. It is the great challenge that we face in, in getting a more complete 360-degree truth about our country. I've been heartened by one thing on this. It's interesting because you know, I did a lot of the early Hunter Biden laptop and even before the laptop, a whole year before that, uh, the stuff I did at the Hill that you know got involved in impeachment stuff. And I kept thinking, well, you know, no one's paying attention. And then some polls came out, you know, and all of a sudden, like 70% of people thought that what Hunter Biden had done was corrupt. And so I think over time, if we're persistent with the, and you have this amazing bullhorn, you reach so many people every day. I think unlike maybe 20 years ago, we're, we're finding ways to get around the mainstream media a little bit. We're not all the way there. And your relative is a great example of the challenge we still face. But I do think this parallel economy is starting to go around all the gatekeepers and reach people that we otherwise might never have touched. And as you look back, is it you were one of the first people to, to create parts and uh, key parts of the parallel economy? The PragerU is such, is an example to get around the liberal universities and get to people about the truth. Do you think five years from now with all the things we're building, truth, social, getter, rumble, that we will be able to reach people even if there is a blockade in the liberal leftist communications establishment? I don't know the answer. I, I, I never give people hope when there isn't a great, uh, there is hope. I, I don't give people optimism. I should be more precise. There's always hope. Uh, when I, I don't know objectively if, if there really is reason for it, the, uh, I'll just tell you, uh, again, of a parallel story from another world. In Norway, a, a lesbian writer is uh, under arrest 
and may face three years in prison for hate speech. And what did she say? Men cannot be lesbians. And she's a lesbian. So uh, with the latest bill passed by Congress, the latest law on same-sex marriage as the law of the land, how long will it be before religious people are arrested for refusing uh, to uh, perform a same-sex uh, wedding? Uh, even now, I mean, a, a woman, you can force a baker to bake a cake, not for individuals, that's a separate issue, but for events that she that she does not subscribe to. And everyone on the left believes that it's okay to do that. Uh, it, we are up against evil, and uh, it is very hard. I've said this all of my life. I've been thinking about good and evil since high school. I've always said the metaphor of evil as dark is incorrect. You can look into the dark. You cannot look into bright light. Evil is such a bright light that you cannot stare at it. And people refuse to, and that's what liberals do. They, do, they will not stare at uh, left-wing evil. It's too painful. It's too close to home. There's no enemies on the left. That's their motto, even though they share almost none of their values. It is stunning. You have encapsulated it in such a large historic way. It really is a battle of good or evil and freedom over control. You had an amazing column yesterday. It really caught my attention. I think I may saw it on the Daily Signal. It is so extraordinary because it's capturing a dynamic. But you, you wrote that there will be large numbers of families where children won't visit their parents or grandparents because of politics. The extraordinary erosion that even in this moment of political division in America, that people would let that affect their family life, their holidays, their obligations to their parents and their grandparents. What moment are we living in? What forces in the young adults of America shaped of an opinion that a political dispute is a good enough reason to ignore your family? So I, I gave a series of, of explanations in there. Uh, one is... And, and secular conservatives don't acknowledge this. They're terrific people, but they just don't acknowledge this. When you, when you don't believe God said to you, honor your father and mother, one of the Ten Commandments, you can crap on your father and mother uh, if you feel like it. It's as simple as that. The people who think God is not necessary for morality, here is my, my uh, abject lesson number one. The treatment of parents by left-wing uh, sons and daughters as compared to the treatment of left-wing parents by conservative or religious sons and daughters. There is nobody in this country, I suspect, and if there is, shame on them, that will not go to their parents and not let their parents see their grandchildren because their parents are left-wing or voted for Biden. It's inconceivable. But it's, it's probably a million strong, the number of adult leftists who will not let their parents see them or their grandchildren because they, they voted for Donald Trump. You, you become vicious when you join the left, not when you become a liberal. You become naive when you become a liberal, but you become vicious when you become a leftist. 
and and I, I I I know if there's a good God, they they will suffer in the afterlife for their treatment of their parents uh, over this issue. It's not like the parents the parents probably love them, and the pain that th- these people call my show and cry, adults cry on my uh, on my radio show that they will that they haven't seen their their grandchildren in five years you you should uh read the comments to that article this is my late my, this is my weekly column so you saw it in the daily signal uh, if the daily signal has comments i'm sure you will see it uh, the town hall daily wire uh it it, it is it it is painful to read how many people write, this is my situation. I haven't seen my grandchildren ever. Mm. Mm. It's mind-numbing to hear. They're vile. Leftists are vile. People don't want to acknowledge that. Liberals are naive and not vile. They vote for the vile, but I, and I draw a distinction. Liberals don't think you don't talk to a parent because they voted for Trump. Liberals don't think you can't visit your grandchildren because you're a Republican. Leftists do, and they vote left, but they're not as vile as leftists. There's an amazing line in your column, and I've heard this from world leaders. In fact, I had a world leader on the podcast, maybe about a month ago, a famous ambassador who said, when did America start turning out children to hate their country and the values that America spread across the world? This is an amazing line in your column. Millions of young Americans who graduate from college are, morally speaking, worse people than they were when they entered college. I hear this when you other people in other countries looking at the United States say this to me all the time. When did we create a college system that created hateful, spiteful, anti-American? After I can tell you, after World War II, and, and if you really wish to go back 100 years, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Every, uni- every great university, certainly the Ivy League, they, they were founded to teach science and theology, the study of God. And, and they were founded very often by, by, uh, by clergy even. Uh, and, and now religion, uh, at least Christianity and Judaism, are considered uh, bad and farcical uh, at a typical university campus. I, I, I challenge, because to me, the issue was secularism, uh, the ultimate issue. And I, I, I just challenge people. I don't care if they're an atheist. Uh, I, I challenge them with this. Number one, who says men give birth? Religious people or secular people? Answer, only secular people. And not all secular people say it, but it's, it's secular people who do. Second, what is the most destructive institution in America? And the, and the stupidest, the university. And, every, and what is the most secular institution in America? The university. So for the arrogant uh, and foolish who think that we could survive the death of Judeo-Christian values, he, here are two proofs that we cannot. It is just amazing to think about this. I'm, I'm, I'm actually numb thinking about the evolution of our country. And I, I, I often, because of the things I get to report on every day, you keep saying, where's the common sense? Where is all the things that made this country great for 246 years? And it feels like they're eroding step by step, piece by piece. But I, there's a moment in the last three, four months that even I, with all my jaded views of the world, didn't really expect. I never thought I would see 
a level of collusion between the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Justice Department, and social media where they were literally targeting Americans. I mean, I know they tried to get rid of the Hunter Biden laptop story, but now you you see this was like a systematic daily operation where government elitists and the FBI, whose job is is to solve crimes, not regulate speech, are telling social media what people can have a voice and what can't. It seems to erode the entire identity of liberty that, you know, America was founded on. How do we stop our government from marching any further? And actually, we want them to retreat from this. But it seems like it's almost ingrained. When you look at what the FBI is communicating, the FBI agents don't see anything wrong with what they're doing. Well, one of the uh, interesting conclusions for me is how utterly malleable the human conscience is. When I, again, I, I, I've debated this all of my life, and I've done 40 years of radio, and people say, oh, you don't need God or the Bible, just that you have to answer to your conscience. The conscience is weaker than a rubber band. The, the, the notion that you could rely on the human conscience, every single FBI crook, and, and the leadership of the FBI is completely crooked. Every one of them goes to bed with a clear conscience. Every one of the 51 intelligence heads who said a month before the 2020 election that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation slept well that night. They lie with a clear conscience. How can that be? It's amazing, isn't it? It, Well, it's because the conscience is so bloody weak. In a handful of people, it is really powerful. But the rest of us, we, we can use a God to whom we are accountable since our conscience is easily manipulated. I have looked for you for years when I listen to your radio show, when I read your columns. I look for inspiration. I look for where is the good. Where, as an American, a liberty-loving American, I can apply myself to make a difference. And I have found myself in the last six months to a year more distraught that maybe that change can't be accomplished that we need to accomplish. And I want to ask you, you look at the moment we're in in our history. We have a government that's bigger than our founding fathers ever would have ever considered acceptable. We have a growing moray in this country that liberty doesn't matter, that the collective matters, that it's not equality of opportunity, it's equity of outcomes that is really what the future of capitalism should be, which obviously is clearly anathema to a free market society. Is there a lever or set of levers that we can still pull to change this country, or are we slowly sliding into this European socialist abyss? Oh, we're worse than Europe. Uh, Macron, uh, the the left-wing prime minister of France, said on a number of occasions, and and very recently, that we're not going to get this woke garbage from America. America is, for the first time in its history, there were so many firsts in American history now, exporting pernicious ideas. America was the source of sending out good ideas for all of its history. It is now sending out worse ideas. They don't send these ideas out from France or Germany or Denmark. It's out from America. And and it starts at the universities then it goes to California, then it goes to the world. So, uh, uh, (laughs) however, having said all these uh, things, every one of which is valid and true, unfortunately, we are also the home of the only organized conservative opposition to evil in the world. 
So you have the most uh, productive left in America and you have the most productive right in America. And we are in a civil war. I wrote this 20 years ago. I, I, I hope, pray it stays nonviolent. Uh, nevertheless, it is a civil war. We have the, the North and South had more in common during the civil war than the right and left have. We have nothing in common. I share nothing with leftists. If they say it is raining, my assumption is it's sunny. <laughs> yeah, it's gotten that bad. And the mistruths that were foist upon this country through the media, through the leftists, through the Democrats, through the bureaucrats in government, there are so many of them now that Americans have decided, you know, I don't really trust what the official Washington tells me. I don't trust what the official media tells me. Now, not all America, but there's larger and growing numbers of America that don't trust the stories that well, all right. that that's right that's a good and, thing and that that is right so the next time they call for a lockdown and i oppose the lockdowns publicly it's on the internet as of april 2020 and uh, i said it was the greatest mistake in international history i was right it it, it uh it shattered young people's lives we have the greatest suicide and depression rate in american history among young people it's thanks to the damn uh quote-unquote experts almost every one of whom is a fool. There is no relationship between expertise and wisdom. None. Zero. Nada. The, the more Uber drivers have wisdom than epidemiologists. <laughs> I believe you after riding in a few Ubers. I agree. The Anthony Fauci syndrome has spread throughout our government and actually throughout every elitist structure we have. I mean, to, to think that people would actually believe you should mask two-year-olds that you should vaccinate children when it is over COVID is overwhelmingly an old people killer. And I'm in the old people side and I'm saying this to you, by the way, I never got a vaccine and I thank God I didn't. And, and I, I had never thought a moment to take Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Seriously. I have been turned around in the last two years. The medical profession is as corrupt as the FBI. You're right. And he's been on the mark on this for so long. I did some stuff on Fauci back in 2005 at the Associated Press, and he reached out to me then and and he, he just shared, listen, I, it's not that I, I want to be anti-vaccine. I want things to work, but I don't trust the process or the people that push this stuff on us. And I think history has validated his concerns in ways that I could never have imagined 20 years ago. Dennis, one last thought. We, we're heading into this holiday season. There'll be some families that won't be able to celebrate it as your column so eloquently caught. But we have a moment where Republicans are going to take control in January. They're going to have a little bit of ability to stop things that have been unabated for two years. What's the single most important step or steps that the Republican Party in control of the House can do for us next year to try to make a difference in all of our lives? Hearing after hearing on FBI corruption, on on uh, the big on big tech doing exactly what this great man, Elon Musk, has revealed about Twitter, hearing after hearing with medical professionals, the giants who signed the great Barrington Declaration ignored by the New York Times and the entire left wing media, thousands of medical people who said that we are being misled completely on vaccines and on on, on lockdowns. We've got they've got to get the word out and and every, every for every attempt to indict Trump. And I don't want Trump to be the next nominee. So I'm not saying this for political reasons. You don't prosecute 
uh, the previous president of your country unless you, you live in Nicaragua. I mean, and it, it, that Americans are okay with this proves that, that on the left, passion is so much more powerful than conscience. Or even value. Yeah, yeah the, the basic values of their beliefs. Are, they actually contradict their own beliefs. I mean, liberalism has always stood for free speech. Now free yeah, speech means our liberal. speech. These are leftists. Yeah, that's right. Li- liberal, liberals are, are brain dead. Li- liberals, it is a tragedy. The tragedy in America is that liberals don't vote their values. If liberals voted their values, Republicans would win every race. You're right. Yeah, that's such a great point. Dennis, it is such an honor to have you on the show. I love reading your columns. I love listening to your show. I want to wish you a very merry and blessed Christmas. Blessings to you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. God bless you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, a great discussion about the FBI and that story we broke earlier this week, right after these messages. Hey, folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls house stealing. That's when the equity in all of our homes is the target, sadly, of scammers. If nobody's watching the title to your home, these scammers can transfer your title to their name, take out loans, and your equity could be gone. Poof, gone. You have to protect your equity from this despicable crime right now with triple lock protection from my good friends at HomeTitleLock.com. The first step is to check on your home's title to see if it's still in your name. Sign up with your address at HomeTitleLock.com and be sure to use the promo code JUSTNEWS. They're going to send you a complete title scan of your home's title in your first 30 days of triple lock home title protection. That's legendary protection, by the way. It's free. HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. One more time. Go to HomeTitleLock.com today and protect your most important asset, the equity in your home. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote. It's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale. Four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Just News. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. What a great discussion with Dennis Prager. Just so much big thoughts that come out of a great discussion like that. Really grateful for his time today. We've got an amazing second guest for you today. Over the last two decades, he was one of the most impactful Senate congressional investigators I ever had the chance to work with. He now is the head of the brand new and very important 
Empower Whistleblower Center, uh, who represents several of those FBI agents, including Stephen Friend, who we had on the show not that long ago. Joining me right now, my good friend, one of the great investigative minds in all of Washington, Jason Foster. Jason, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's an honor. I want to turn to some of the stuff you've been doing at Empower, but I really wanted to bring you on because no one has a better view of what was going on in the fall of 2017 when we now learned earlier this week that the Justice Department and FBI were spying on Devin Nunes' staff using grand jury subpoenas to get their personal email and phone records in that November, December timeframe of 2017. At that moment, you're the chief investigator for Senate Judiciary and Chuck Grassley. Bring us through why the FBI spying at that moment on the congressional investigators unraveling Russia collusion is so jaw-dropping. Sure. So just um, just so you guys know, by the way, I have not received a similar uh, notice yet from Google uh, to the one that Cash got. I don't know if mine will come later or if they if they sought my records or not. Uh, but I know uh, I heard you and Cash Patel talking about that Um uh, on your show earlier. And, uh, you know, he raised, you guys raised the question about whether Senator Grassley's staff may have also been the target of these. And of course, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. I, I haven't received a notice just so people. That's good to know. Yeah. That's one of our questions. That's answered. Yeah. At, at least not, at least not yet, but one may be in the mail. Who knows? Um, but, um, no, so we, I just wanted to, uh, Go back and talk about the the context here a little bit. So, you know, people may not recall, um, you know, you guys in your story, you talked about Rod Rosenstein, you know, sort of making that threat to to Nunez's staff. I wasn't I wasn't there in that meeting. I didn't hear that. I've just read about it, you know, publicly like everybody else, um, you know, but if you back up, Rosenstein did not get confirmed uh, until um, uh, April, late April of 2017. And he, his nomination was actually on hold um, for quite a while by Senator Grassley. He was objecting to his nomination coming to the floor and, and getting him confirmed um, because we weren't getting answers to the questions we were asking about the Trump-Russia matter. Um, and specifically, you know, we were, we were looking at Fusion GPS and their connections to foreign entities and so forth. Um, so, you know, we were we had a hold on Rosenstein. And actually, the reason the only reason that we in the Senate side were able to get and see copies of the Carter Page FISA, which no one knew about at the time in March of 2017, was because of that hold. Um, and, uh, you know, they they the, the Justice Department decided that, you know, if they wanted Rosenstein to get confirmed, that they were going to have to share these FISA applications with us. And so. You know, we learned, uh, you know, at a time when they were classified, they've of course been since declassified, but we learned in, in March of 2017 about those FISAs and we began looking at them and studying them and going over to the SCIF over the several ensuing months. And what people don't, um, I think, maybe have an understanding of from the public record is, you know, at the time we were sending classified oversight letters. We, we typically... We did everything publicly. You know, when we sent a letter, it was a public letter. We didn't we didn't typically send private letters. We would always put them out um, as soon as they they were sent as a way to try to pressure the department to respond. Um, but, you know, since this was all uh, an ongoing, you know, counterintelligence review uh, and dealt with classified information, of course, we had to be very careful and we were concerned that they might be. Uh, you know, that by sharing it with us, uh, you know, any leaks then would would cause scrutiny to come upon us. So uh, and of course, you know, what happened was uh, we got it in March of 2017. We reviewed the applications um, 
they were leaked and the Washington Post reported them in April of 2017. Uh, it appeared to be from a Democrat source. And then, of course, um, you know, the Senate Intelligence Committee's uh, security officer was actually eventually indicted for lying to the FBI about his contacts with reporters around that time. Um, and he was the person who was our minder, who was sort of controlling our access to those FISA applications. But it took us a very long time to to study them and to and to do other research and to figure out because because of the way we had to go to the intelligence committee in order to look at the FISAs whenever we wanted to look at them. And then we had to take classified notes and we had to keep our notes, you know, in the skiff, uh, um, you know, with uh, not even in our own skiff, right? You know, in the in the in the uh, intelligence committee skiff or in the in the Senate skiff, um, and. So it took us a long time, but we were actually sending private classified letters that were completely non-public asking questions about the inconsistencies between what the FISA applications said that Christopher Steele had claimed to the FBI about not having contacts with reporters and what he had admitted in his, um, uh, in his litigation, his libel litigation in England. And so... Uh, you know, we were sending those letters at that time and really putting a lot of pressure. We, you know, the, the, the FBI had to explain either, you know, when we sent our referral, which didn't get released until I think February of 2018, um, we, you know, we were really putting them on the horns of a dilemma. They had to either admit that, that Steele had lied to them about his contacts with reporters or that they had lied to the court. Um, and we had lots, you know, we we had tense meetings with with Mr. Rosenstein over you know our our aggressive efforts to get to the bottom of this at the time as well, um, and uh, you know we we sent a letter in August of 2017 where we publicly mentioned our earlier classified letters, but of course we couldn't put the content out. Um, yeah, so that's August of 2017. Uh, I went back and looked at the timeline just to see what was going on around the time. Of, no, of the of the subpoena for Cash Patel's and and the other intelligence committee uh, records on the House side, um, and so that was November of 2017. We had sent a public letter on August in August of 2017, uh, you know, pressing for answers and referencing our classified correspondence, uh, although not getting into the details. Um, uh, so, you know, I mean, obviously we knew that by pressing so hard and by, you know, having access to the classified information, that anything that then came out, um, you know, that that might put us under scrutiny and that we might be looked at. Uh, so, uh, you know, we were being, of course, extremely careful to follow the rules, and we never did put out our, um, our referral uh, of Christopher Steele um, you know, which was all based on classified information until after on the House side, Devin Nunes and his committee were able to force the declassification of all the facts and circumstances that were in our classified letters that we'd been sending the entire previous year. So, um, so that's the context. And for that reason, you know, I'm curious, obviously, as to whether or not, um, the Justice Department, uh, also uh, you know, was seeking my personal records and, and for what reason. And of course, there are all kinds of questions about why were they seeking Cash Patel's personal records and uh, in connection with what? So it's a grand jury subpoena. What is the predicate? Um, what, what were they investigating? Uh, it's been suggested to me that, you know, they might try to claim that they were investigating some leaks related to the FISA application. You know, the only one we know of is the one to the Washington Post, and it was from 
you know, appears to be from, uh, you know, the, the, the indictment related to, to the, to Mr. Wolf and the, uh, his contacts with reporters. So, um, you know, it's not a surprise, uh, but it is shocking. I mean, we, we suspected it might be happening. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, um, it, it's pretty amazing though, that five years later, this comes out because of a Google policy. Um, that they notify the, the the people whose records were sought, um, and unless the you know, I mean, I, the new Congress really needs to do some aggressive oversight of this, and it's going to be tricky uh, because you know it's you have grand jury secrecy rules involved, um, but unfortunately, the real question here is was the grand jury? I mean, it, it's it goes to the core of the grand jury proceedings, right? Was that a legitimate proceeding that was? actually investigating a crime and they had, um, you know, they had, they had good cause to do that. Um, or were they just using the power and the secrecy of the grand jury to suck up a whole bunch of information looking for something that they could use against people who were causing them, you know, to have to answer uncomfortable questions publicly about um, how they handled the Trump Russia matter and the, and the Carter Page Fizes in, in particular. Um, we don't know enough yet to know what what at all it was related to, um, but uh, doing getting the getting the new Congress to do oversight of essentially was a grand jury abused, right? Was the grand jury process abused? It, it has all the same difficulties that you know that we faced in trying to do oversight of whether the FISA process was abused, um, and so you know I don't I don't. Somebody on the, uh, you know, in-house leadership is going to have to really stand behind the committees and they're going to have to be aggressive and not only issue subpoenas, but have a plan for enforcing subpoenas, um, using the power of the, of, of the constitutional powers of the legislative branch uh, as aggressively as possible, because there's going to be major resistance, um, you know, and it may take a combination of holds in the Senate and, um, you know, and, and, you know, actions using uh using the power of the purse and other methods to make sure that they get compliance but they really have to look at the core of the grand jury process itself which is a very sensitive thing to do just like the FISA process was i want to ask you about something that sounds very granular procedural but a lot of the fbi folks that have talked to me since i broke the story on tuesday have raised it they tell me that the normal procedure is for the FBI, when they want to get phone records, to get a search warrant, which means they need to have judicial review by going through the grand jury to get a third party's phone records, as opposed to telling the person themselves they were getting the phone records through a grand jury subpoena. They were able to bypass a judicial review of a judge and just get it with, through the relationship of a prosecutor with a grand jury, which a lot of people say you can indict a ham sandwich with a grand jury. Anything stand out to you, the fact that they didn't use a search warrant, which would have had a judge look at this? Well, yeah, that's so that's why grand jury proceedings, you know, are such an amazing, uh, amazingly powerful tool to get information, because the standard for a grand jury subpoena is not probable cause. Right. Most people think, you know, well, what is what you know, what 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 hurdle do you have to get over to issue a grand jury subpoena? It's not probable cause. Um, it's, it's a lower standard than that. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's relevance to the, to their inquiry. Right. So, uh, and when you're seeking third party records, uh, you know, my question is, I think something that needs to be explored here by the, by the Congress and its oversight, um, as a policy issue is, well, how do you get to, if, if why is, why are people just finding out five years later and how are you ever able to, 
litigate any potential issues. I mean, there are potential constitutional issues here, right? There's separation of powers. So, so, so key questions are, did the House leadership know? Uh, what, were they informed by the executive branch? Um, if they did, did they have an opportunity to make any speech or debate claims uh, that may have existed or any separation of powers claims that may have existed? Um, so if you if you do it all in secret and you never know that your records are being turned over real time, then you don't have an opportunity to to litigate the, the, the really serious constitutional questions that are there. Um, so so. Right. And so is it just happenstance that Google happens to have a policy here? And what about all the other um, uh, social media companies or email companies or Internet service providers who may have received similar subpoenas? How much information and then. What restrictions are there once the FBI and the Justice Department gets all that information? What restrictions, if any, are there on them being able to, you know, put, put that into, a, you know, some some database and use it for other purposes? Right. I mean, do they are there are there are there controls so that, you know, Cash Patel's personal emails are only reviewed by certain people, or does it get distributed to, I don't know, the whole, you know, Mueller task force or whatever? Knowing that at the moment that these grand jury subpoenas are issued and these records are obtained, Congress is exercising its constitutional oversight of duty. So it's actually exercising a power the founding fathers explicitly gave it. And these guys are, in fact, potentially intruding on that. If you don't get a chance to contest that, it never gets litigated. The executive branch can do whatever it wants during that time frame, right? When you think about the attitude that we now know was exhibited by the FBI and the Justice Department in 17, they didn't think it was a big deal that the FISA court had been misled. They didn't think it was a big deal that Hillary Clinton had paid for the dossier and that this was essentially a Democratic-funded federal investigation that turns out to be based on completely unsubstantiated, if not debunked information, there's an attitude, there's a swagger, there is a a seeming disregard for things like separation of powers, the importance of exculpatory evidence in the Brady rule. What do you think is the potential worst case scenario of what the Justice Department and FBI were doing here? Well, the worst case scenario is exactly what I said Congress needs to, needs to examine, which is the worst case scenario is they were abusing the grand jury process as uh, prolifically as they were abusing the FISA process, right? That, that they were, they were, they were using that tool not for a legitimate criminal investigation, but rather to gather intel to use in an information operation against, you know, um, the people who were attempting to hold them accountable. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's the, the, where the, was the permanent Justice Department, um, you know, running the show and and doing its best to gather information that it could use against the people who were investigating it. I mean, as you know, both Cash and I were the subject of hit pieces. Um, you know, uh, uh, what is the prominence of those hit pieces? Did they did they ultimately come from leaks from all the information being sucked up by all the powers, uh, you know, in the executive branch? Um, you know, were they, were they, you know, were they abusing that criminal process? Because, I mean, obviously the problem, and the reason I say it's a hard, it's a, it's a touchy issue to investigate is because you absolutely need grand jury authorities, right? To investigate criminals, right? So, um, you know, it's hard to say that they shouldn't be able to get 
records, um, you know, when they need them for a legitimate investigation. But the problem is there isn't sufficient oversight of both the criminal and the intelligence functions of the executive branch. Um, they they need to be they need to have to answer to elected, um, you know, constitutionally separate branch of government. Uh, and, you know, they they resist expertly. And unfortunately, that resistance isn't met with as uh, typically with as much expert force from the legislative branch. And so the people don't get, you know, effective oversight as often as they should of these really important issues, because everyone's afraid to, um, you know, to get to, uh, you know, th there are reasons that prosecutors need to have uh, discretion and need to be able to investigate things and, and need to be able to, you know, uh, and should be quiet about it when they don't charge anybody. That's, that's, that's all correct. But the problem is, is that means they can also abuse it and not talk about it and, and secretly leak it to uh, allies in the media. And there's not enough oversight to expose it when they do that and they can do it with impunity. So the question is, is that, is that what they're doing? And, you know, you, I, I heard you talking with Cash about whether there should be a, you know, some kind of a church committee. Um, I think they're absolute. I, I agree. There absolutely needs to be some kind of a, a, a serious effort to to get the scales back into balance a little bit between the executive branch and the legislative branch uh, in terms of oversight authority. And you know, a lot of this, a lot of this would be would go away if there was just the deterrence that you know would people knew, oh, if this is going to come to light one day because of a congressional subpoena or a congressional oversight hearing, well, I'm not going to do it, right? So that really is sort of the global solution to, the, to, to that problem. You know, sunlight really is the best disinfectant. It's exactly what our founding fathers intended. It's why they gave the oversight authority to Congress of the executive branch. And, and it, now we look at this moment. I, I think we're going to learn a lot in the next year. It, it seems as though the House Judiciary Committee is moving forward to investigate this I want to step back one degree now because this revelation fits into a larger set of revelations. We've known everything about Russiagate. You did such an important job in helping unravel that. But now you see an FBI that was paying Twitter to censor people, clearly targeting Americans while telling the American public they don't censor Americans. They only censor Russian disinformation. That isn't true. The allegiances and alliances are giving security clearances to people at Twitter as a way to get in good with them. There seems to be these exercises of power by the administrative state, the FBI, the Justice Department. They don't comply with the FISA court rules. They're spying on a congressional committee during the middle of a very important investigation of their conduct. They're asking social media companies and pressuring them, cajoling them, even paying them to censor Americans' content. There seems to be a larger movement in these law enforcement agencies to further erode the civil liberty protections that we all assume we have. We assume free speech is pretty absolute. We assume if we're a congressional investigator, we're not going to be spied on just because the executive branch is curious who you're talking to. Is there a moment now where these agencies need to be reprimanded, reminded, pushed back on the civil liberties, much like what happened in the 70s with the church committee? Yeah, well, and, and you know, the, I think what we're seeing with the revelations in the Twitter files is that, um, you know, a lot of this was, um, you know, the reason for the abuses was because it all occurs in this opaque realm of 
um, you know, sort of voluntary cooperation from the social media companies and the internet, uh, you know, uh, companies. They, you know, it, it, the FBI asks them for cooperation, and and they have these, uh, you know, they have these uh, public-private partnerships and these entities that do, you know, uh, supposedly are doing some kind of academic research on on uh, and sharing information back and forth, and it all gets very murky. And then you have, of course, the wink and the nod relationships, right, where um, you have people at the you have so many people at Twitter who used to work at the FBI, uh, both in senior and lower and mid level positions, uh, and you know they um, they have friends back at the at, at the bureau and can you know informally share information, um, and that's that's rife with potential for abuse because I mean the reason we have procedures and rules is to provide protections to make sure that. Um, you know, that civil liberties aren't being uh, violated. So, um, yeah, the problem is the problem is you need to have a stiffer spine from uh, the private sector in resisting, uh, you know, all the entreaties from government to share information that they the government doesn't necessarily have a right to. It's an enormous moment, I think, in our history. And I think the next couple of years, how we act, how we address these issues, what sort of transparency we get, uh, we'll decide what sort of country we're going to live in going forward. Yesterday, Matt Whitaker, who is a friend and longtime supporter of FBI Director Chris Ray, came out and said, it's time to make a switch at the FBI. Chris Ray doesn't have what it takes to affect the sort of change the FBI needs to restore trust in the American people. Your thoughts on the former attorney general, someone who actually was in Ray's camp for a long time, now saying, I don't feel like this FBI director has been forthcoming enough, honest enough, aggressive enough. I think he even mentioned he had been co-opted by the bureaucracy. He's more interested in his reputation of what the FBI thinks of him than what the job requires him to do for the FBI. Your thoughts on someone that prominent calling for the end of Chris Ray's tenure? Well, you know, uh, as you know, I worked for Senator Grassley for a long time. And one of the things that he would say very frequently to to anyone um in the executive branch who was a you know political appointee and brought in and it, uh you know and and grassley would be asking them for information and they'd be giving all kinds of excuses as to why they couldn't give it a very frequent response to from grassley to that that resistance would be well look you need to either run the department or the department's going to run you those are powerful words because it's true right and, and he would say because he saw it over you know however 40 years, you know, doing this work, Senator Grassley has seen this pattern of conduct constantly. You have you have the political coming in and actually a lot of times, you know, even folks on the other side um, who are politically on the other side of the aisle from Senator Grassley, they would they would honestly want to try to comply with congressional oversight. And before they got into the position, they thought that that's what they would have to do and, and were happy to, to comply with that duty. But they got resistance from the permanent bureaucrats who've been there forever. And then they would just start mouthing that resistance. And, you know, they don't want to they don't want to start a war with all the thousands of people who work with them. But that's their job, in a sense. I mean, they are they are the, the cabinet secretaries and, and, and leadership. I mean, who, people who are presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed are in a completely different category from all the permanent career bureaucrats. There's the reason that they're presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed is to convey upon them the, you know, the duties of being representatives of the, uh, you know, elected representatives of the people. They're there to be the eyes and ears for the elected constitutional authority. 
by which the bureaucrats operate. They don't have any independent authority of their own. And so they should have to answer tough questions from a new FBI director, right? Um, and so, yeah, I'm I've been disappointed with how a lot of things that happened that weren't on Ray's watch that he didn't have any reason to defend, um, you know, he hasn't been aggressive enough in, uh, at least in any public way, in exposing and, and, you know, trying to make change. It's not clear to the average observer that he's interested in making change or admits that there is a major problem. You know, I mean, one, whether, whether the criticisms of the Bureau are true or not, the fact that you have a major percentage of the country who now believes that the Bureau is on the one political team as opposed to the other and is going to have their thumb on the scale in any politically charged investigation, you know, for the Democrats. That's a problem. And it's not a sufficient answer for Ray to say, well, anyone who says that is just, you know, they shouldn't question the the loyalty and patriotism of the hardworking FBI men and women. That's not a sufficient answer. It's not one our founding fathers would have accepted. And it's not going to convince the people who you need to convince, right? Which is, which is the, the public. The, the public has this perception because they're not stupid. They've seen too much. They can see that they can see what has happened to Hunter Biden or what hasn't happened to Hunter Biden. And they can see and they and they can see what happened in the Trump Russia matter. And they know full well that if, you know, if uh, if Donald Trump's son had done um, a tenth of what Joe Biden's son has clearly done, that uh, not only would it be, you know, headline news on every news station everywhere, but there would be official action. And so there's clearly a perception there that um is a problem in and of itself, regardless of the underlying merits. And the best way to convince people, you know, I said what doesn't work, just telling people you shouldn't question the FBI doesn't work. What does work is transparency. Answer the, use, use the oversight mechanisms that exist, right? Engage with the IG, engage with the Hill, engage with Congress, engage with critical media, and and show, you know, answer hard questions and show if, if there's no political bias, then you should be able to muster facts that demonstrate that there's no political bias. Yeah. And instead they use deflections. They don't actually address the concerns. Jason, we've got a couple seconds left. I want to ask, how do people follow all the great work that you're doing at, at the Empower Whistleblower Center? Uh, EmpowerOversight.org is our website, um, and we uh, we put a, if you go to the media page there, uh, you can see what we've been doing. And there's a uh, you know there's a donate button if people want to help out, um, and uh, every little bit helps, and we appreciate it. It's an amazing organization representing Agent Steve, friends, so many other people. Jason, great insights, really important conversation. I want to wish you an early Merry Christmas. We'll be sure to have you on after the New Year. All right, Merry Christmas to you, John. Merry Christmas, my friend. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. 
It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, folks, welcome back. Hard to believe the show went by so fast, but when you got an incredible conversation going with people like Dennis Prager and Jason Foster, the time flies right by. I hope you got a lot out of it. I hope you also got a lot of that story that we broke. It is an extraordinarily important time in American history. We're learning so much and we're going to continue to keep learning and pushing and pressing and prodding until we get all that we need to get out there. So God bless you. Have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite. You and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, expert politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.